Hello, everyone, and welcome to Controversies in Church History. I am Derek Taylor, your host for the podcast that takes you into, in detail, into the most important but controversial events in the history of the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church. And this is the last episode in our series on liberation theology, entitled A Permanent Revolution? Question mark. Just to bring you up to speed, if you had not uh, listened to the first three episodes, we talked about in the first three the background in Latin America for the emergence of the matrix of ideas that become known as liberation theology, the emergence of it in the 1960s within the church. And then in the last episode, we talked about its emergence into the mainstream of life in Latin America, but also the arrival of criticism of it and opponents within the church in Latin America as well as the, because by the end of the 1970s, it sort of burst onto the world stage in 1980. And in this episode, we're going to talk about <clears throat> basically how by the end of the 1980s, by the early 1990s, uh, liberation theology is an eclipse, and um, what's happened to it since, and whether or not it's still important, is it still with us? Uh, because it it seemed to decline and more or less... Not necessarily in an academic sense. We'll get to that. Plenty of academics um, still uh, use that nomenclature and refer to themselves as liberation theologians of one sort or another. But in practical terms, does it have an influence? We'll get to that at the end uh, of this podcast, this episode. But So we stopped off last time to get started here with the uh, the Pueblo meeting in 1979, the... the, um, the uh, coming into the papacy of John Paul II, which introduced a very different dynamic into this, because, of course, Paul VI had been, if not a supporter of liberation theology, he was sort of a progressive to a certain degree. He had some sympathy with it. Well, here along comes Joseph, uh, excuse me, um, Karol Wojtyla, who was raised in Poland, who was bishop under Soviet-allied uh, regime in Poland. He hated communism. And he hated Marxism, and he wanted nothing to do with it. And when he came into uh, came into the papacy, uh, one of the things he quickly began to do was uh, begin to try to counter some of its influence and counter some of, in more generally speaking, the the things that had been happening, of course, in in the church more widely after the council. And to begin here, I'm going to talk about because in 19, uh, 1979, the same year as the Puebla Conference in Latin America, Mexico, that he attended. Uh, he began a, uh, a, a well. He criticized harshly the Jesuits as they were then run under Father Pedro uh, Arope. I mention this because uh, Father Pedro Arope, if you remember last time, was the uh, became the superior general superior of the uh, of the the Society of Jesus after Vatican II sort of shifted its focus. It went from being this hyper conservative doctrinally focused order to the one you know today, and uh, he's in some ways responsible for this. Even as early as 1973, he was getting warnings from Pope Paul VI about experimentation uh, within the Jesuits. Uh, but when John Paul II came in, uh, came uh, to the throne, uh, he explicitly criticized uh, the Jesuits openly. He accused them, the Jesuit leadership, of, quote, causing confusion among the Christian people and anxieties to the church and also personally to the Pope, unquote. 
uh, criticizing what he called their secularizing tendencies and doctrinal unorthodoxy within the order. And in fact, by 1981, because 1981, Pedro Adope has a stroke, uh, John Paul II actually does something really radical, at least considered to be. He appoints someone to actually govern the Jesuits in the interim, and they deeply, deeply resent this, and they hate him for it. But my point is, there's a turn against this general shift toward social justice in general, and, of course, against things that are inspired by Marxism. This is going to uh, happen with liberation theology. And this is further signaled that in 1980, uh, by 1980, in 1981, when John Paul II appoints Cardinal, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, the Bishop I believe, of Munich, freezing at that point, to be the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the doctrinal body in the Vatican in 1981. So there is a signal, which some of these theologians don't get, that he's going to start sort of, you know, cracking down on this. And in fact, uh, next year, John Paul II will send a letter to the church in Nicaragua. If you remember, Nicaragua is the place where the Sandinista Party, the communist Sandinista Party, has taken over in a coup uh, in 1979. And he's clearly meaning to criticize the Marxist nature of that government. I won't bore you with the details. It's not that important. Just know that that's what he's criticizing. And the next year, he makes a tour through Central America. And he'll actually go to Nicaragua, and he'll give a homily in the cathedral there, uh, in the square, and he will, again, make what uh, least uh, supporters of liberation theology uh, interpret as criticisms of, uh, uh, of liberation theology, but also of the government itself, which they don't like because they support it. So there's this turn against it uh, by the early 1980s. And in fact, there's going to be criticism, uh, criticism directly uh, um, directed at liberation theology from higher quarters. Uh, in uh, 1983, uh, for example, the CDF will actually issue um, a document, Observations on the Theology of Gustavo Gutierrez, in which he is criticized for his, quote, uncritical acceptance of Marxist interpretation. And so the CDF is gearing up to criticize uh, liberation theology in a big way. In fact, even before this, um, Pedro Adope um, issued a, a, a brief criticism of liberation theology in Civilta Católica, which is the main Jesuit journal in Rome. And I have to say, reading this, I was surprised uh, by it because, as you've probably guessed, I'm not a big fan of Father Adope. For whatever the reason, probably, I, I assume he's at least trying to get in the good graces of John Paul II and, and ward off any further uh, action. By the way, he never took any other action, unfortunately, against the Jesuits. But he issued a criticism of liberation theology, which I have to say, I, I, I basically, I, there's nothing I can disagree with here. Um, I'm going to briefly summarize this. He critiqued liberation theologians for their use of Marxism for theological analysis. Uh, he noted that adopting you know, certain parts of Marxism can easily slip into adopting the whole thing, that it's a coherent system. If you do that, you'll probably slip into it. Um, he pointed out you know, the obvious incompatibility of Marxist you know, materialism with its universal ideal of class struggles being incompatible with Christianity. Uh, he also criticized the notion that violent struggle is the privileged means, uh, privileged means of ending oppression and emphasized that whatever was useful in Marxism had to be purified in the light of the gospel first before even being used. In other words, it's a very 
strong critique uh, in many ways, whatever his motivations. And in fact, as we're going to see, it's going to anticipate what the CDF will say in 1984 with a few different major differences. Uh, more or less the same thing, Rots and it's Rotzinger uh, who's behind most of this. Um, and in fact, uh, Rotzinger is already gearing up for this. Um, uh, in 1984, a private paper he gave to a group of theologians was leaked to the press, which led to, and I should mention this, it led to, I mentioned last time that liberation theology wasn't in the minds of Americans and Europeans until the end of the 1970s. By the early 1980s, it's definitely on their minds. Uh, Cold War's ramping up. A lot of this has to do with politics. Uh, a lot of people on the left in the church hate Ronald Reagan, so that's part of this stuff. But you have European theologians uh, intervening on behalf of these, these uh, liberation the the uh, theologians. Shortly before his death in 1984, Carl uh, Rahner wrote a letter to Gustavo Gutierrez, bishop in Peru, defending him against criticisms. And as you're going to see, uh, after that, that uh, private paper of Rotzinger's uh, leaks into the press, it's leaked by someone else to the press in 1984, uh, it's condemned by the journal called the Concilium, uh, called Concilium. If you don't know what Concilium is, I have to explain this. Concilium is a journal that was started just after the Second Vatican Council by, I'm going to put this, uh, by the more progressive members of the people who were involved with the council, who were supporters of it. Uh, people, people, by the way, who had been teachers of these liberation theologians, people like Yves Congar and uh, Yves, uh, Yves uh, Marie-Dominique Chenu, Karl Rahner, uh, that group of people and who wanted to push a progressive interpretation of the council. I mention this because this, the, my point is liberation theology is getting caught up in these debates. It's, it's been a part of it anyway, but it's coming out in the open that it's part of that debate about the council because there was another journal established shortly thereafter, after Concilium, which is the more progressive liberal one, in the 1970s called Communio, started by people like Joseph Ratzinger and Henri de Lubach, and uh, Hansar von Balthasar, who had been, again, they'd all been together in the council, but once things started going crazy after the council, they split over a lot of this. And they were like, hey, slow down. Uh, and that's where this is coming from. I say this because you're going to get a, a vote of confidence from a conference a couple of years later, which is sponsored by Communio and Conference of Latin American Theologians Opposed to Liberation Theology, sponsored by Communio. So this is getting into this. So this is becoming a cause celebra. And it's causing, my point is, if you're, you, you read about this, you read people who are sympathetic with liberation theology or, or practice it themselves, they get really bitter about this because they hate, well, Ratzinger for criticizing them, basically. Anyway, that's all lead up to the instruction itself, which is issued in Mar uh, August 6th of 1984. I'm going to summarize this in some detail because this uh, document is worth reading, summarizes most of the things that are wrong with liberation theology. Um, it says in the introduction that it's uh, intended to identify abuses of Marxist theory, theory and liberation theology, not to condemn uh, its concern for the poor or the oppressed. Uh, it uh, also acknowledges um, the legitimacy of what it calls the preferential option for the poor, and also... Um, uh, says this desire for liberation from worldly misery is actually something Christian. It's something that goes back to the dignity of man made in the image and likeness of God. 
Uh, but, as the document puts it, true liberation can, quote, can only be understood in the light of the specific message of revelation, authentically interpreted by the magisterium of the church. Remember, the method of these liberation theologians was not to start with the deposit of the faith or the church's tradition or authoritative statements of the church, but to start with one or two things, either criticism of existing structures in society and or the experience of uh, present-day poor people. So this is a criticism of its theological method as much as anything else. goes on to say true liberation means liberation from sin and death uh, in order to worship the true God who alone saves us, who by his own can save us. Uh, it notes a concern that uh, people have, um, it, no, it uh, acknowledges, uh, well, it says that it's uh, notes that sometimes concern for the poor can lead some to abandon the idea of evangelization uh, and subordinate it to meeting the political and economic needs of the poor, which he says no evangelization evangelization has to come first. The kingdom of God comes first. It also acknowledges, which is true, that there are multiple quote unquote theologies of liberation unquote, but claim that the ones that used Marxism uncritically were dangerous. Uh, so secular sociological theories can be used as tools for theology, as instruments, but they cannot begin with them. They cannot be the privileged means of trying to understand the world. They're too at odds with uh, the church's teaching and faith. One of the problems it identifies with Marxism is that it makes class struggle a, a sort of universal law of history. And so when employed as a tool by theologians, it becomes, it becomes, uh, takes the first place. It becomes a sort of, not just a, an idea, but a, a, the privileged way of seeing all of reality. Again, it acknowledges that, yes, there are, there are times when, yes, you know, uh, class struggle is a, is a fact. And he doesn't say it in so many words. I'll say it sometimes. It's necessary to struggle against an oppressive class. Um, but uh, this is, can be used for things that are opposed to the church's teaching. One of them they point out, and this is something that uh, Arope does not point out, is that belief in a universal class struggle can be used to justify a quote-unquote church of the people. This was already being done in Nicaragua and other places, by the way. A quote-unquote church of the people that identifies the hierarchy with the oppressors and calls for the people to choose their own ministers, in other words. So using this as an excuse to democratize the church's hierarchy. Um, the identification of class struggle with all of history itself leads to a secularizing of the gospel, reducing it to mere history. Uh, according to the document. Uh, it goes on to point out the difficulty, and this is another thing to bring up here, the difficulty, difficulty in discussing these issues, these uh, issues with these theologians who embrace Marxism like this, because they embrace this oppressor-oppressed mentality. If you're not a, on the side of the liberation theologians, the poor, or the oppressed, you're, part, you're aligned with the oppressors, and they just reject everything you have to say out of hand. At the same time, he notes a tendency among these more extreme thinkers uh, to retain words and symbols, you know, symbols like the words like the gospel, kingdom of God, so on and so forth, um, who retain those things but replace them with meanings drawn from Marxist analysis. So they're taking the church's teaching and using its words but emptying it of its content and putting something else in its place. And then finally, it goes on to criticize what Arupe criticized, which is that it tends to privilege the violent overthrow of unjust regimes and says that this doesn't necessarily lead to just ones, which is true. 
uh, and though it might be, though, even though it might be necessary to pursue, remove sinful social structures. Uh, and it does acknowledge that there are sinful social structures, which is true. But it notes that this, the, this theology tends to ignore the fact that sin has its origins ultimately in the human heart. That's, that's my, my, my again, expansive summary of the document. Secularizes the gospel, replaces the meaning of its terms with something else. Uh, it, it, it basically replaces faith with a uh, secular ideology in its most extreme form. In some of the other forms, it's not condemned. Now, the responses to this are interesting. Uh, in an article, Leonardo Boff, remember Leonardo Boff is the sort of second, one part of the second wave of theologians coming out of Latin America, Brazilian theologian, he's still alive. Uh, he claimed in a response that the instruction was, how do I put this, that it, it, uh, it missed the point about liberation theology, that it was, it was um, its understanding was clouded by a, what it called a European style of theology, which didn't understand uh, Latin, uh, Latin American theology, which is what liberation theology was, and therefore didn't understand the Latin American experience of oppression. Because Latin American theology begins, as he says, with the experience of the oppressed rather than the Bible or the church's traditions. He also claims that criticism of the instruction, uh, instruction don't apply to Latin American theology since it starts from different, different premises. Uh, and says it, uh, Rome has misunderstood it uh, because it did not dialogue with liberation theology, liberation theologians. In other words, basically, as far as I understand him, is basically saying <laughs> Ratzinger didn't understand what he was saying in his books, and that he's wrong because he's beginning from the wrong premises, which apparently are the Bible and the Church's tradition. And you kind of kind of see why these things clash because that was kind of Ratzinger's point. <laughs> you can't start theological reflection from you start it from revelation, not from your own personal experience. Add that in there; it's important. But uh, and I, he seems to sort of confirm, I think, Ratzinger's point about not <laughs> not being able to dialogue with these people. Uh, Gustavo Gutierrez, for his uh, for his um, purposes claimed in an interview he had more positive things to say uh, about the instruction. And yet, I, if you read it, uh, I read a translation of it, he said that, that such criticism could only deepen and purify liberation theology. But at the same time, he basically didn't, he basically said the criticism didn't apply to anything he'd written and that he wasn't changing anything. And he basically didn't. <laughs> so... Um, uh, the next year, Juan Lee Segundo also wrote a book-length reply to it in 1985, which argued that liberation theology didn't have anything to do with Marxism. And I have to say, I don't know what to make of these responses, because unless... I, I, I put it this way. Even, even Let's say I don't know anybody's listening to this. Actually, again, I want to be fair to everybody. If you really think this is liberation theology is a great thing, I don't. You really think Joseph von Singer was too stupid to understand their works? Uh, I think he got them spot on. For what I, I'm not an expert, I've not read a whole lot of these these thinkers' works, but this is pretty much what they're talking about. And uh, either they're either they they've misunderstood him, 
or quite frankly, I, I hate to say it, I have to, this sounds like they're lying, to be honest with me. I cannot believe, you know, maybe they're not lying outright, but it's always the case when someone gets criticized, well, that doesn't apply to me. I, 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 I can say from what I've read safely that it applies to every thinker I just listed there. Um, uh, those criticisms to me are spot on. I don't see how you get around them. But that was only the first part of the CDF's uh, attempts because a couple of years later in 1986, they the first instruction had actually promised a more positive appraisal of the theme of liberation. This appeared in that year. And I'm not going to go through as much detail here, but it emphasized the connection of the church's social teaching with its doctrine of salvation. In other words, helping the poor is directly related to your salvation from sin and death and from, you know, salvation from going to hell in the, in the afterlife. And that that's what uh, liberation theology should focus on, is trying to integrate those things uh, and provide a moral framework for social political action. Um, but not as a complete summation of the gospel. And this is the problem with many of these liberation theologians. They don't just take this as a uh, moral framework for certain political things that may happen. Again, let me go back to this and be clear about this. Uh, I have some shred of sympathy with the liberation theologians, the Latin American ones. The situations they dealt with in the 60s and 70s really were emergency situations. And yes, having, you know, what to do in a situation where, you know, normally you don't want to see priests taking up guns and killing people. But violence is not intrinsically evil. And, you know, when you have whether the right wing or communist regimes killing and torturing people, I think there's something to be, I think you can make an argument for that. But that's not, that is not at all what these liberation theologians were doing. They were making liberation theology into an entire worldview. Yes, one that basically displaces all those themes about salvation and the, ne and the next life, basically, from Christian theology. It really, they turned it into that when it didn't need to be this. And this is a quotation from the document. I'll read one. <clears throat> says, quote, the salvific dimension of liberation cannot be reduced to the socio-ethical dimension, which is a consequence of it. By restoring man's freedom, the radical liberation brought about by Christ assigns to him a task, Christian practice, which is the putting into practice of the great commandment of love, unquote. And again, the response of, again, people like Gutierrez and Boff was interesting to this document. It seemingly ruled out what they'd been doing. They both hailed the document. Why? Because it mentioned the concept, it basically in their minds gave uh, the church's imprimatur to the concept of liberation, therefore their work. Uh, and again, I think you see one of the problems here with liberation theology. They'll take terms and use them in one way, and then when somebody else uses it in another way, they'll say, no, you mean what we mean, and therefore we've been validated, which was not the case. Um, Gutierrez was left alone, uh, he was by far the most moderate of these theologians, by the way. Uh, Boff was not. Uh, in 1985, the CDF, Ratzinger, called Boff to Rome, uh, had a several a meeting over several hours with him, along with two other bishops from Brazil who were sympathetic, who were liberation theo theology types. It was, by all accounts, cordial. And uh, apparently, uh, uh, Boff left this meeting thinking that the matter had been settled in his favor. 
for whatever reason, uh, I'm not sure why he, th he thought this, but he was sent an instruction there shortly thereafter not to lecture or to write. And he was a he was an uh, editor of a, um, a theological journal in Brazil. He's added, uh, uh, ordered not to do anything, uh, to have a, uh, a, a, a sabbatical of obedient silence, I think was the phrase used. And this led to, this was the biggest row. People got supremely pissed over this. How dare you silence this, all this other stuff. And um, again, <laughs> the, I, the refusal to accept that certain things are off limits for church teaching is a real problem with a lot of theologians. But this is sort of a, a good case for it. And again, to a certain degree, I can kind of understand it. I'm trying to understand here. I am. Maybe you don't want me to try to understand if you're listening to this, but I'm going to try to understand. Uh, I, 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 well, I, uh, let me go back a second. I brushed over this before, but talking about you know disciplining these theologians. If you recall, last time I mentioned that the Vatican issued a statement after the Senanistas took power, basically ordering all the priests who were part of that movement to, to, to abandon their offices in that government. They didn't want priests serving in any political government. This actually happened in the United States Um it was Father Richard, was Richard Drynan. There was a, I can't remember the politician's name, but the guy's name was a priest is actually in Congress. And uh, again, ran into, ran afoul of, of John Paul II saying, no, you can't, you know, priests should not take political office. Uh, one of these was Ernesto Cardinal, one of the, you know, darlings of the liberation theology movement. When he visited Nicaragua in 1983, Cardinal greeted John Paul II as soon as he got off the plane and as soon as he got off the plane he, he nailed before him and as he was kneeling before him John Paul II started wagging his finger on him and telling him in Spanish he needed to get his, get his affairs right with the church and everything you can find this on, on, on YouTube like it's pretty funny actually in a way wagging his finger at him like a child I can kind of get why that might offend you that being said there's, there's a reason for this um, even after uh and his, uh, his silencing, by the way, lasted 11 months, Boff's silencing. He was assigned a personal censor for his work, even after he got, came back from that. And for good reason. Uh, in 1986, he published Ecclesiogenesis, The Base Communities Reinvent the Church, which argued that base communities should exist alongside the church and not be subject to its authority. Uh, he followed this up in 1987 with The Maternal Face of God, The Feminine and Its Religious Expressions, in which he called for the ordination of women. Uh, after publishing a series of articles reiterating this, this for this, uh, in 1991, the, the Vatican forbade him to publish anymore, and so the next year he left the priesthood altogether. Uh, I, again, this is the part of the problem with theologians like this. They refuse to accept certain things can't be part of there's everything's always up for grabs at least as long as they say it is and uh he left the priesthood i mentioned ernesto cardinal he was uh suspended uh from his from the priesthood uh in 1984 um, because of his refusal to leave political office uh, later that year the jesuits expelled him from the society and um, he remained in his post with the Sandinista government until it was closed in 1987. And actually, he formerly left, left the party in 1994. Um, he finally got it through his head that the communists were no better. <laughs> that they were, yeah, they could be brutal too. What a shock. Um, anyway, the point is, by the early 1990s, much of this conflict had died down as most liberation theologians moved on to other things. 
Gutierrez was never formally censored. Uh, he actually went on to collaborate uh, with Cardinal Gerhard Muller on several books. I don't know why. Uh, I, you do tell me what Cardinal Muller sees in his work. I don't see much in it, apparently because he wasn't as radical as the rest of these people, and he didn't react as badly. I guess he admired him for it. I have no clue. Don't ask me. Uh, the only other incident I could I can find maybe there were others I'm probably I apologize if I missed them but the major one came in 2007 when the CD, CDF issued a notification a notification is just just making people aware uh, of problems in the work of John Sabrino another liberation theologian who whose work it claimed overemphasized the human nature of Christ and the downplaying of his divinity something that of course if you Begin with Marxist analysis is bound to happen, probably, if you take it that seriously and literally. But by the early 1990s, it had died down for a reason. And I mention this because uh, liberation theology declined. Again, you get this from its from its supporters. Ah, the, 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 the big bad Vatican shut us down. Really, that's not what, what, what pulled the plug, at least in practical terms, on liberation theology. Several external things basically undid its influence. The first is that in Latin America, that emergency situation where you had these horrible regimes in place eventually uh, went away. By the mid-1980s, uh, both Brazil and Argentina have elected governments again. Uh, and as you get to the 1990s, more and more countries come back to uh, democratic governments where people have a say, and so they're not being you know brutalized like they were in the 60s and 70s. And so that that situation that had led to, you know, people saying, you know, violent overthrow is the only way is gone. It's a lot of the air comes out of it for this reason. Uh, uh, same thing, by the way, happens. Uh, I mentioned the Sandinistas. That have been the one success of communist parties in, uh, in, the, uh, in the 1970s. Uh, the Sandinistas, uh, I won't go into this too much detail, but through a, a mixture of pressure from the Vatican and pressure from the United States. From Ronald Reagan, this is, if you remember, if you're old enough, if you're not, it's not that big of a deal, but the so-called Iran-Contra affair, the Contras were a party, a guerrilla group that emerged uh, to oppose the Sandinistas. Uh, they were brutal and violent, just like the Sandinistas were. Reagan pumped money into them, supplied them with arms. It was a big scandal about this, the uh, Iran-Contra affair in the, early, in the 1980s. Whatever the the whatever the whatever the status of that by the end of the nineties, uh, uh, that and just the fact that communist communism's a, a an awful system led to the decline uh, of the Sandinistas. In nineteen ninety, they actually opened things up to a real election, and they lost. And that was the end of the Sandinistas uh, as a as a force. And so you have the failure of the one experiment that liberation theologians really rallied behind. You also have an institutional decline in Latin America. For the simple fact that the longer that uh, John, the, John Paul II stayed on uh, stayed in the uh, on uh, on his throne, he could uh, appoint more and more bishops, almost all of whom were much more conservative than their predecessors, and they began in the late 1980s promoting something called a theology of reconciliation, one that basically wanted to see the you know helping the concern for the poor as primary, but not as an entire worldview. Um, like the like the liberation theologians did, so they began a positive uh, alternative to liberation theology, and then just in general, someone pointed this out. I think it was Edward Lynch, who was an historian, that by the early 1990s, no third wave of theologians had really emerged to take the place of people like Boff 
and Gutierrez, whereas there had been you know, a couple generations, it just sort of died out. It lost its cachet for a lot of reasons. One of which, uh, reason for that, would be the end of the Cold War. In the mid-1980s, there was a, a U.S.-Soviet thaw, thanks to Reagan and Gorbachev. Uh, eventually, um, uh, the Soviet regimes in Eastern Europe collapsed in 1989. Berlin Wall comes down. Soviet Union falls in 1991. And, of course, the air goes out of communism everywhere. Again, liberation theologies, <laughs> whatever its practitioners may say, it was partly dependent on political circumstances, at least. And that took a lot of the air out of it. So you get by the early 1990s, obituaries appearing for liberation theology. Uh, both in popular uh, venues um, uh, and, um, and academic journals. You hear you know, titles like The Decline and Fall of Liberation Theology, uh, The uh, Rise and Fall of Liberation Theology, writing its obituary. And it was gone as a practical force. <clears throat> for a lot of different reasons. Again, still existed in the academic world, still does, uh, but even then, as we'll see in a moment, kind of, at least the sort of old-style liberation theology, Marxist stuff, um, uh, uh, is gone. And uh, there's another reason, of course, for that eclipse, and people were noticing this at the end of the 1980s, is that, of course, the Catholic Church started bleeding members in a very dire and serious way to Pentecostal and evangelical Protestants. Uh, as the saying goes, there's a phrase for this, actually. There's actually a phrase, if you can imagine. The church opted for the poor, and the poor opted for the Pentecostals. Which is not a surprise. Um, liberation theology, you know, again, I, I, I'm trying to be fair here, because I think there were some circumstances in Latin America that made it you know, attractive to people. But, again, as a, a sort of political theology for an emergency situation, I have, again, a, a grain of sympathy. But just as, you know, it's it, it's basically it's basically a, a political program with a, a, a sort of airsat spirituality attached to it. And people uh, are not, you know, people see that. And people in Latin America said, no thanks. If you give people a choice between something that's fake and something that's real, even if the real is, you know, look, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of Pentecostalism. Like, you give me a choice. Liberation, theology-inspired Catholicism and, you know, Pentecostal prosperity theology, shouting and stuff and speaking in tongues or whatever. I, you'll go to the thing that's real rather than the thing that's fake. Uh, and that's the problem with it in the spiritual sense. It's not the real... <laughs> it's not real in that sense. So that's the big, and I, if I'm not mistaken, I believe believe the nation of Brazil just became majority Protestant for the first time. And, uh, and no, I'm not blaming all of that on liberation theology, but it was, a, it was not suited at all for the spiritual needs of people in Latin America. I think that's clear. I don't know how you argue against that. The other thing that, there, that uh, leads to its eclipse in the 1990s is something that this is more general that's happened in the academic world, in the political world, in Europe, the United States, and then Europe and the West in general, is that a concern for the poor on the part of the left got overtaken by race, gender, and sexuality. 
if you're going to hear stuff about liberation theology, and some of this stuff, by the way, was already being brooded in the 1960s and 70s. Feminists took up this, this cry. Uh, feminist theologians will talk about liberation theology in the context of women. Um, uh, 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 black theologians did this independently of the Catholic Church in the United States in the 60s. And I should mention this. I'm not, I'm not mentioning there's a whole Protestant world of this stuff, too. Uh, but I'm focusing on the Catholic Church because I'm Catholic. Um, and, uh, yeah, put bluntly, the contemporary left doesn't care about the poor that much. <laughs> they care about they care about gays and transgenderism and all that stuff. You look at, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not being flippant, you go look, go on academia, academia.edu and Google what Catholic theologians are doing in, in academic circles, and you'll hear stuff about white supremacy and all this other stuff and queering this and queering that. That's that's the going thing. Um, you're not going to get that that that's overtaken that stuff. And by the way, there were already always criticisms about this, uh, especially from women uh, feminist theologians. Uh, the reason why is pretty obvious. <laughs> all these early liberation theologians were men. <laughs> As you can imagine, Latin American men weren't terribly interested. <laughs> Every interested in applying it to women for what should be obvious reasons. So I got eclipsed by that in the 1990s as well. And that's more or less the story, except for we have to talk about a couple of things here. One thing, actually, then I'll get to some my final thoughts on this. The one thing is, of course, you know, what's the what's the legacy of it? What's the meaning of it for us? Is it still with us? Because we have to talk about Pope Francis and his relationship to liberation theology. Because if you have followed his pontificate, he has resuscitated every major figure with uh, associated with liberation theology. I had a very public meeting with Gustavo Gutierrez in 2019, lauded him, uh, said incorrectly that he was the most, uh, most, I guess he didn't say persecuted, he was the most, he was the most criticized or whatever of all the, the it was not. <laughs> um, but this was taken as a sign that he was for liberation theology. Publicly, uh, I think he received Leonardo Boff as well, I can't remember. Uh, he, um, he also uh, removed uh, Ernesto Cardinal's suspension as a priest before his death. He did it in 2019, he died in 2020. Uh, he also um, has opened the in, an investigation for beatification for several people involved with it. Uh, Helder Camara was declared the servant of God. Uh, he opened up in 2018. Uh, Francis opened the uh, investigation for the beatification of Pedro Arbe. And he also had uh, Enrique Angelelli, who was a bishop in Argentina in the 1970s, who was an who is basically a chaplain to the left-wing Montaneros uh, guerrilla group, uh, who died in a car accident. Uh, uh, people who uh, in Argentina dispute that he was actually... The whole idea is he was assassinated. He declared, uh, Francis actually declared him a martyr, even though it's not really clear he was actually martyred. He wasn't even, not even clear he was assassinated. So all this leads people to think, hey, he's resurrecting liber liberation theology, uh, and all this stuff. And it's clear, by the way, he means to signal that to people. He wants people to think that anyway. I have no idea, uh, as we'll see in a minute, why. I'm not sure what he actually, if he has any uh, deep thoughts about this. Pope Francis is not a, an ideas guy. He doesn't think things out. He doesn't care about that stuff. He's not an intellectual, and he doesn't like intellectuals. So I think this is more of a political thing in his mind. Signaling to his followers, I'm on the side of the good guys, not the bad guys. 
two things need to be mentioned about Francis in regard to liberation theology. One is that there is this this uh, only people know this 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 idea that he was always a progressive in theological terms. He was not. In the 1970s, in the late 70s, he was the <clears throat> superior for the province of his, I, I think that's the right term, pro, superior, I don't know, head of his Jesuit province for several years. And he was known as a, at least in that context, a conservative. He was not, he was seen as an opponent of liberation theology. And in fact, um, one of the generals who ran the junta during the Dirty War in Argentina has he died, but he said while he was in prison that he had a, a good relationship with the church. Uh, people, some people, at least when he first became pope uh, in 2013, there were articles in places like the Guardian, the English Guardian, British Guardian, uh, raising questions about his role, about Brant, uh, uh, Jorge Bergoglio's role with that regime because some Jesuits disappeared under his watch. Uh, it's not been mentioned since, and I don't know. I haven't. I can't judge the the truth or whatever of this, but uh, clearly something changed. But he was not an opponent not in its heyday, not at all. The other thing is that um, <clears throat> theologians around Francis have claimed that he is not a liberation theologian in that uh, in terms of following it precisely, rather that he is a proponent of what some have called the theology of the people, and the theology of the people. If you've never heard of it. I had never heard of it until I read, read about this. Um, <clears throat> according to the, the guy to read here is a guy who was a liberation theologian, Juan Carlos Canone, C-S-C-A-N-N-O-N-E, Juan Carlos Canone, is uh, Argentinian theologian at a university, Catholic University in Argentina, wrote an article about this in which he said Francis followed what he called the theology of the people. And he, according to him, it's sort of an alternative to liberation theology uh, that emerged around the same time in the 60s. It's sort of similar. It has a lot of similarities. I don't know how to describe it. It's kind of, it sounds like a grab bag of things to me, but in essence, I'll put it this way. It's sort of a populist political theology, an application of political, of theological ideas to politics, which essentially rejects Marxist social analysis Um. Um, for interpreting the gospel in the light of the experience of the people, according to their culture, at least according to him. And um, this is interesting because Juan Luis Segundo, back in the early 80s, gave a talk in Toronto in which he basically said that liberation theology went in two different directions. One's the more, you know, we start with Marxist criticism and then we go, you know, liberate the people. The other branch, he said, started with the experience of the people. He didn't use the term uh, uh, theology of the people. I don't know if anybody was talking about, but uh, but that is basically this is the idea that you, again, you don't start with Marxists. You start with the, the views of the people because their, their experience is pr a privileged way of interpreting the gospel. I mentioned, I mentioned Segundo, by the way, because in his 1983 talk, he actually mentioned that reason why a lot of liberation theologians started to do that, started to turn away from starting with Marxist social analysis, is because uh, uh, poor people in Latin America rejected it out of hand. <laughs> Didn't buy their Marxist stick, so they tried another tack with them, apparently. Uh, the things it shares with liberation theology is an emphasis on history and experience as the main side of starting point for theology, rather than, again, the church's teaching, its tradition, the gospel, the Bible, stuff like this. Um, that's one thing it shares with them. The other thing it shares with them is that sort of, and I discussed this earlier, that sort of us versus them mentality. Now, um, 
Francis doesn't talk in these terms. Um, and apparently, according to the Scanon, or whatever you pronounce his name, liber- uh, the theology of the people doesn't use the terms oppressor and oppressed. That's the Marxist terms. The term they actually use is people, the people, in all its vagueness, which Scanon says is a great thing. Uh, and literally anti-people. He uses that word in, the, in that article, anti-pueblo. Other words, anything that's seen as being against the people is anti-pueblo. It's elitist, in other words, and therefore bad. And it does sort of it, it does seem like a sort of stand-in for that oppressor-oppressed thing. It's very similar in some ways. Uh, a quote from Scanone kind of makes this clear here. Um, quoting here, yeah. Um, quote, institutional and structural injustice is understood as a betrayal of this unity of the people. The idea, the idea, by the way, here is that the people know what the faith is. Their unity, their their sensibilities, their experience is the, the measure of that. Uh, and so structural injustice is understood as a betrayal of this unity by one part of the whole and thus becomes a force opposed to the people. So anybody that rejects the people's experience is basically a bad guy or something. And if you're trying to apply this to Francis, I think this does make some sort of sense. I don't know, by the way. I don't think he has any sort of worked out theology in his head. Uh, I don't. I, he just doesn't care about ideas that much, as I said. But it does make some sense. If you think, for example, when he uses the terms like mercy and says people are being rigid or being, you know, harsh or something, you know, think about, you know, his efforts to... Um, <clears throat> Um, to, 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 you know, to give uh, communion to uh, divorced and remarried people, right? Civilly divorced and remarried people. You know, the people demand this, and therefore not to give it to them is to be opposed to the people. Think about, <clears throat> um, this also makes sense of, something that otherwise doesn't make a lot of sense, his, uh, his uh, trying to ban uh, the old Roman rite, right? The Latin mass, you know? Uh, it's bad. Why? Uh, because it's elitist. Because it's in Latin, and the people can understand it. It's opposed to the people's experience, and therefore the people want it are divisive. And therefore, it has to be sort of you know stopped that way. Again, I don't say that. I have no clue if that's true or not. But it makes sense of or otherwise are kind of inexplicable things uh, that he sees things in that way. Uh, and again, there's a lot. There's a lot of crossover with liberation theology. They're not the same things necessarily. They don't have to be. I'll, I'll mention this come in a minute. Not everything that sounds like Marxism is Marxism. This is something on people on the right. Like everything is, not everything's Marxism. Uh, there are distinctions and they matter. I think this does matter here. It matters partly because you can see Marxist, uh, you know, academic theologians as being anti-people. In other words, it's elitist, which fits more, I think, with, uh, with uh, Francis than, 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 uh, than the liberation theology stuff. couple of reflections here, a couple of reflections. The first thing I want to note about uh, liberation theology is, and I noticed this going right through it from the time we started the first episode, you, we had to talk about its relationship to the Second Vatican Council. The people uh, in the 60s, the ones who started this, uh, a lot of their, they claimed the mantle of Vatican II uh, to put this stuff into play. Vatican II is called a dialogue with the world. This is our excuse for it. It's definitely related directly to Vatican II. It's related in uh, also in the methods um, by which, uh, again, the church has sort of governed itself, and even Vatican II itself, Vatican II represented the triumph of sort of church bureaucracies, bishops' conferences, stuff like this. This is where liberation theology has 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 gotten its ideas into the church's official teaching. Uh, 
the Medellin Conference, CLAM in general, bishops' conferences, academic meetings, you know, the idea that the Holy Spirit works through the bishops <laughs> meeting with a bunch of bureaucrats is, is, is basically the idea here, I guess. At least it, they don't say it that way, but that's that in practice what it basically is. The idea that this is going to be attractive to people is, is bizarre to me, but that is how they operate. The other thing to note about this is, is how generational liberation theology was. Uh, again, a lot of these people that were involved in this came of age in the 60s. It's, it, there's this idea that there was this experience that you know, led to Vatican II that, was a, that we had it right after that was unique and has to be now the privileged way of understanding the faith evermore. Uh, a few days ago, or last week or so, Pope Francis gave a, a TV interview to a uh, to someone in Italy, and his response on so they asked him a question: "Is what's the Church of the future going to look like, and what you what, where you think it should look like?" And he said it should look like the Church as Paul VI envisioned it after Vatican II, after Evangelii Nunciandi, which is a a document, apostolic constitution that Paul VI issued in 1975. That's by the way the, the, where the phrase "new evangelization" comes from. In other words, it should go back to the 70s when we were all on the side of the people and against the oppressed. It's this very dated, just, you know, again, I hate, to, I don't want to sit here and, you know, okay, boomer, but it is very generational uh, in its origins. It doesn't seem to have a lot of, a lot of legs outside of that generation of people. The last thing I'll mention about it is that uh, liberation theology for all the talk of post-colonialism and criticizing the colonizers and all this stuff, it's painfully clear to me that liberation theology is just derivative of European ideas, Marxism above all, but not just European ideas, but of European mindsets. The I, I note here, by the way, the influence of the teachers that a lot of these thinkers had when they went to Europe in the late 50s and early 60s. I mention them because people like Yves Congar, um, uh, Yves Dominique uh, uh, Chenu, uh, Yves Dominique Marie, Yves Marie Dominique Chenu, um, only de Lubac, they had been they had been uh, disciplined by the Vatican prior to the Second Vatican Council, and I think some of these guys never really forgot or forgave that. And I think they had, if you read, people like Congar never said anything in public, but in their journals they make pretty clear. Like for them, the Second Vatican Council was like the overthrow of the wicked regime. They hated Paul the Twelve, Paul the uh, Pius the Twelfth, and his uh, his curia. Again, not without reason, by the way. Some of them were treated very badly, but there's this sense of wanting to overthrow things, which seems to me to describe. Again, I mentioned this about Vatican II, I think, in one of my talks, but Vatican II seems to me like something that was done by and for Europeans and doesn't necessarily have a direct relationship with the rest of the church. And I think it's a huge problem. Uh, again, I'll go back to this. I'll say this again. I have some a lot of sympathy with the situation in which people found themselves in Latin America in the 60s and 70s. These ideas were in no way, shape, or form a solution to their problems, and they were uh, a detriment, a poison, in fact, in many ways. And that leads me to my last point about all of this. Because again, I mentioned this idea before, people saying everything is Marxism. You can, you can in a non-intellectual setting, take bits and pieces of Marxism and treat them as a slogan. And I think that's what's happened, basically, 
in the Western world since the 60s. But it's not the same Marxism itself. And what's been taken from that ideology is the idea of revolution. Um, I call it revolutionism. This is the generic idea that leave aside social, social, uh, social dynamics, all that other stuff. You take the ideas that in the past, everything was an oppression. We're all oppressed in the past. And therefore, we have to combat in the church, the church's past collusion with the oppression. Again, take uh, Traditionis Custodis. It's not about the liturgy. It's about belief. If you're a kind of person, and there, there's, a, there's a bunch of people, and they're in high positions in the church these days, who thinks that Vatican II was important, not because it presented, uh, uh, made a different presentation of the faith to try to appeal to modern people, but because it overturned beliefs in the church that were associated with its past. Because it, why? And that's bad because in the past, the church was on the side of the colonialists. The church was on the side of the, of the upper classes. One way or the other, the church before Vatican II was tainted by oppression. And therefore, overturning things is the way to go. If we just destroy a bunch of things, then the great liberation will come about, and there'll be this wonderful new church or something, which again, it's like Marxism. It's not the same thing. It's, it's just taking one piece of it and acting as if it's, again, there's this vague general idea that's out there. And you can see this, it's all in Western life now. This is where wokeness comes from. This is where all this cancel culture, culture stuff comes from. Uh, it's all the same thing. It's this sort of blanket condemnation of everything in the past. And we just get rid of the, you know, again, it's like this, it's, it's, it's this, you know, I hate to say this about uh, liberation theology, but I'm going to say it. It was always intellectually puerile nonsense. It's just not, it's, it's not very intellectually, you know, it's, it's not very, it's just junk. It really is. Jürgen Moltmann was right. It's basically, you know, juvenile seminary Marxism. It's probably one of the reasons Ratzinger hated it so much. <laughs> he was a brilliant guy and having to take this stuff seriously. It's, it's, I can't take it seriously. It's just not serious. When you say the whole world comes down to just like, it's not that, it's not that simple can't see the view of course the, the point of it is not to actually see the world as it is that's what be the reply of these people no we're trying to make the world transform it into a better place and all they're doing is destroying things and uh my point about all this is that the church cannot survive <laughs> if it embraces this idea you can't go on destroying things it's not again the same thing that applies in the political sphere violent overthrow of a, a bad regime is not going to produce <laughs> uh, uh a, a good one violently overthrowing everything the church has passed. And again, this goes back to, you know, take the gay thing, right? You know, the gays were oppressed in the past. Now the church has to embrace them because it's their perspective and blah, blah, all this stuff. It's the same thing. It's the same basic, very muddle-headed idea. Um, but it, it, it can't survive like that. Cannot. Um, and so uh, And so that's why... Again, there's this idea that, yeah, and, and, that, and that, my point is, in that sense, yeah, liberation theology is sort of still with us. Not the thing itself, not the thing that might have had a grain of truth in it, but this sort of vague, just, you know, I mean, it's just amazing how many people want to go on defending all the things, you know. <laughs> you know, I'm still amazed by Francis's response to that Italian TV presenter. You want the thing, the future of the church is going to be like 1975. 
You mean when it was collapsing all around us? When people were leaving the church in droves? Jorge Bergoglio, when he became the Archbishop of uh, Buenos Aires, uh, there were 53, uh, if I'm correct remembering this, 53 vocations that year to the priesthood. 53, 53 men ordained to the priesthood that year. When he left, there were 12. <laughs> uh, again, at what point do we say things that were at least, okay, you understand why you tried them, they don't work, they're false. Uh, I don't know why this is. Um, I don't know what's going on. I know it's terrible, but um, I know the church can't survive this way. Having said all that, let me wrap this up. I know it's kind of depressing and to this, this, to the, to this wrap-up here. I'm not depressed, as you can tell. I'm a pretty happy guy. <clears throat> One thing to take from all of this is that it is true. It is true that liberation is a part of the Christian faith. Even if the institutional church is highly corrupt, which it is today, um, you, and again, sometimes, sometimes you're thrown back, you know, on your own individual devices. That happens in church history sometimes. Um, you can still be, you can still be liberated from sin and death. You can still experience the liberation of God through prayer, through devotions, through growth and holiness. And your personal sanctification is where the beginning of the end of all this comes from. And in fact, it's a weird thing about the Christian faith that I've always found. It. There's a real tension between the life of an individual and the church's institution. One can be terrible and the other can be great. <laughs> and uh, my life's pretty great. I'm happy. I, I, you know, I, 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 I don't want to leave you in despair. You should not despair. You have no reason to. If you remain with Christ, if you remain with the sacraments, if you remain with um, the, the faith, um, you can still experience that liberation personally and be the seed for um, uh, ultimately uh, this chapter of history to finally come to a close, which uh, may God uh, make it happen soon. <laughs> okay, that's, that's it. That's my last, that's my last thing. Uh, thank you guys for listening. If you enjoyed this, if you uh, enjoyed the podcast, please you know, go to my YouTube channel and subscribe. Go subscribe uh, to or, or you know download uh, uh, on whatever whatever platform on, on all of them: Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, Anchor, all that stuff. Anchor is my host. Uh, check out my website. I, I post articles there. I do blog occasionally. I also post articles when I get them published. I write for Crisis Magazine. Uh, I have a Facebook page. Find me on Twitter. I don't know why you'd want to find my own Twitter, but I'm there. Uh, Controversy in Church History uh, and uh, other places. And uh, if you, please, uh, trying to grow the podcast, if you, you know, just connect to friends. Say, hey, this is really good. It's helpful. You send them, a, you know, click, you know, tweet, tweet them on Twitter, send them a DM, whatever, send them an email. Uh, spread the word. That's the best thing you can do. Um, I, I did, you, you can donate if you want to. There's a donation thing on Anchor. Eh. Uh, I, I did run some ads last month uh, on Facebook. I think it may have helped gotten some more traffic. I'm going to try that again. But uh, big thing is spread the word for me. I'd be, I'd be grateful about that. Last thing, uh, I'm getting deep into my, my, my actual semester, so I'm teaching. So I have a little less time. I don't know when the next series is going to occur or what the topic will be. <laughs> if you have any suggestions, let me know. But uh, probably a few standalone episodes would be a little easier for me to get to during the semester. Maybe at the end of the semester, I'll have time to get uh, some meals done. Maybe not. Uh, well, that's all for now. Uh, thank you, guys. Um, you know, 
God bless you all. Remember, um, um, uh, um, um, keep close to Jesus Christ, uh, his whole, our, our Holy Mother, uh, and, uh, and everything will be just wonderful. So thank you guys. God bless and take care.